0: Hi, everyone. Thank you, Evelyn. Uh, Welcome to RMIT Gallery, and welcome to Revelations, which is uh, an exhibition, as you can see, of sculpture from the RMIT University art collection. Um, Now, as Evelyn said, what we thought we'd do is have a bit of a tour around the exhibition, talk about some of the works, but also talk about the collection in general. Um, As Evelyn did say, if I start speaking too low or anything like that, or I start babbling, please don't just put your hand up, yell at me, for God's sakes, um, and tell me off. And whilst I figured we'd have some time at the end for questions and things like that, if you want to interrupt me, please feel free at any stage. Um, So I know a couple of you work at the university, but um, very few people actually know that we do have an art collection here. Quite a large and significant art collection of some 2,000 pieces of fine art, plus posters, plus gold and silversmithing. And in many ways, it's the best kept secret at RMIT Um, and in other ways that's a terrible thing. Uh, We have a real problem with um, access to to the collection at RMIT University and unfortunately only very rarely for exhibitions like this are we able to to bring things out and let them be seen. A lot of the time they're actually uh, on display in people's offices and things like that but um, because of security th- reasons and uh, the potential for things to be knocked over and things like that, sometimes the pieces are just kept in storage for years on end. Um, and we really relish opportunities like this to bring them out and allow people to see them because otherwise what's the collection for? Now, which is actually a good question. So let me start off with that. Um, the collection itself is comprised of three major parts. Firstly, the RMIT corporate collection the RMIT School of Art collection and the Philip Institute collection. Now, RMIT merged with the uh, Philip Institute of Technology in 1982, I think, Um, and uh, at that time we basically acquired everything that was theirs, including their artworks, and thank goodness for that because they had a fantastic array. So the three uh, component collections are very different. The uh, RMIT corporate collection was essentially... um, a couple of key pieces purchased for decoration of very important people's offices. It was essentially a statement of power and wealth. Um, So there were some nice pieces, but not very many. They rarely got a chance to be seen by anyone other than chancellors and vice-chancellors and presidents and things like that. Um, Beyond that, uh, the School of Art Collection was very much engaged with collecting the work of former staff members, not so much students at that time, um, but... Primarily, people who taught at the School of Art. And the Philip Institute collection, on the other hand, was very much interested in the outward art world. Um, they didn't collect, deliberately didn't collect work by uh, former members until right up at the very end. Um, before that, it was all, um, it was the best of contemporary art uh, at the time, which was uh, from the 50s through to the 80s. So, most of the modernist period, uh, getting into sort of the pop art and the postmodern and the. Um, new expressionist periods uh, in Australia, but um, very much engaged with um, the contemporary art scene. So uh, Edward Lindsay, um, sorry, Lindsay Edward, whose name I always get turned around, uh, was head of the School of Art uh, for some decades. And he actually put aside $1,000 a year for the uh, collection of artwork. And that was a huge sum back in oh, the 70s He began it. Um, And that allowed us to collect, oh, maybe two, three, four, five works by current uh, staff and students, or staff at that stage only, or maybe one or two very good pieces. And just to give you an idea, one year we bought, I think, for that $1,000 or just under it, two Fred Williams works, which are now worth considerably more. So it was... um, a really visionary uh, idea of his at the time, to actually start collecting um, these works. Actually why don't we move into the main space, uh, just because we're getting all sorts of tram noises from outside. Was Fred Williams a staff member here? He wasn't a staff member here, so that was one of the rare opportunities where we uh, looked outside of the staff at that stage. So, but um, once um, Edward had retired from the university, the collection began to languish. We underwent a series of vice-chancellors whose priorities were, let's uh, be polite and just say they were elsewhere. Um, the, and the collection largely went into storage or once again became uh, the province of very important people and their offices and most of it got hidden, a lot of it got forgotten. Some of it, I'm ashamed to say, went missing. Um, and we're still looking for some pieces and so if you spot anything around campus please let us know. Um, Up until the current Vice-Chancellor Margaret Gardner, who was very interested in the possibilities of the collection again and what we could actually achieve with it, what we could do with it and she began this dialogue with the gallery about what is the collection for. Ah, thanks everyone. Now the collection, so after a series of thanks, um, everyone. Series of discussions. Uh, the um, art committee was formed, or the RMIT art committee. This. So is it? Okay. So right, Everyone can hear. Yeah. yeah. Good. Um, the art committee was formed to actually um, talk about the. Um... So this is a bit weird. Um, I'm not used to using microphones and technology and things like that. I'm a bit of a luddite, I'm afraid. Um, To talk about what we could do with the collection, how we could use it, how could it be not just for decoration. Um, So the idea came into being that the collection would be a history of RMIT. It would tell RMIT's story through its staff, through its students who've gone on to become established artists, and there are some major names. Uh, Most recently, you might defer to people like Sam Leach, who was Alumni of the Year a couple of years back, or people like Tony Lloyd. Um, But stretching right through to people like um, John Brack, who worked here, or Inga King, Tay Adams, people like that who really shaped the course of art in Australia. And beyond that, apart from telling the story of who has been at RMIT or has a connection to RMIT, actually talking about RMIT's aspirations and its values, being an engaged member of society, uh, being engaged with the Asia-Pacific region and with Aboriginal communities, talking about ideas of social justice and new technology, innovation. And the idea was that we would take the collection and mould it into something that reflected all those things, which is very, um, very high-minded and in some ways very hard to do, but we're endeavouring to do so anyway. And I'll leave it up to you as to whether we've succeeded or not. But this is one of the early stages, uh, basically showing off what we've been doing over the past five years or so. Um, bringing to light the old works that we'd already had and beginning to pull together new and interesting pieces that reflect RMIT's values and its history. Um, So let's talk about a couple of examples of each of those, starting with the very old. Over on the wall here, we have two sets of plaster casts. These are probably um, the oldest pieces that we own in the entire collection, 120 years old. And there are um, casts that were made at the British Museum in the 1860s uh, of the Parthenon frieze, the Elgin marbles, and a, uh, an Assyrian frieze coming out of Nimrud. Um, both were discovered in, or discovered is the wrong word, of course, um, nicked might be a better <laughs> word um, in the 1850s um, by the British Museum, taken home to Britain and never, ever, ever to leave again. Uh, However, the British Museum decided that that, um, other institutions would benefit uh, from similar pieces. And so they had a whole series of casts made, several hundred. Um, Most of them were shipped around Britain and used in the various institutions there as a means of, you know, instructing and elevating was the term used because museums at the time were very much about elevating the general public Um, and um, allowing people essentially to see what they might otherwise be allowed to see because a trip down to London... Uh, would cost a fortune. Um, Redmond Barry, uh, Sir Redmond Barry, who was the chairman at the time of what was to become the National Library, uh, not National Library, I'm sorry, State Library of Victoria, um, but was then known as the Gallery of Victoria, heard about these and for the very, very princely sum then of £2,000, um, decided that he would commission an entire set, not just these two uh, friezes, but... Um, Uh, three or four different other friezes, busts, statues, the Venus de Milo, um, cornices, you know, everything you could imagine. Uh, And it actually commissioned a set of 300 plaster casts, beautifully made, and these are one-to-one copies. Uh, It's essentially exactly like looking at the real thing, the real thing is marble, Um, of both these pieces and all the other pieces. They all went to the State Library, or what was, as as I said, then the the, National. the Gallery of Victoria. Um, And they were very successful on exhibition for about a year or two. And then the library or the gallery discovered that they couldn't actually store them. What were they going to do with them? Well, fortunately, recently, the Working Men's College had been formed, which was then to become RMIT. And so all of these works were shipped across the road. um, And they were used by the students for drawing, for teaching about Western art, and architecture, and archaeology. Um, about you know, classicising and idealising influences of Western art. Um, very successful and we use right up until the present day. The only reason that we have these on display here is because uh, further copies have been made by the, uh, the foundry just over the road in building 35 and the copies are now used for teaching. Sadly though, of those 300 pieces, these two freezers, and there's a couple of other bits and pieces we have as well, but these two freezers are essentially all that's left. They are plaster. They do crumble. There is that. But as I said, RMIT tended to forget about things, lock things away, things disappeared. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if you know there's some really fantastic freezers decorating people's houses these days. Or um, Did any of the stuff end up at the National Gallery School? No, the, Na- oh, the National Gallery School actually uh, was allowed to take a whole lot of stuff themselves. So um, they got all sorts of things. The, the Gallery Victoria collection was actually divided up. Um, quite heavy-handedly, um, the, the what is now the library was allowed to keep a small um, collection of things, which I think now the National Gallery regrets because th- what the library actually has is quite an interesting little collection. I do recommend if they when they have exhibitions, you go across the road, have a look at them. They're really fantastic. Um, I, I know I'm jealous of them, and I think the National Gallery is at the <laughs> moment as well. Um, but anyway. We have these two pieces, and we're very proud to have them on display here. Um, relics of you know, the Victorian ideals of elevating the public. They have been used as teaching aids, and now, once again, back on display. And we hope to have these on permanent display somewhere in the university sometime quite soon. Now, moving on to the very, very recent. And we have here uh, this pair of chimpanzee hands by Lisa Rowe. Now, these pieces, once they've finished uh, being exhibited here, will go straight into um, permanent display in Bowen Street, which runs up the middle of the university. Slightly ill-timed, I'm afraid, given that Bowen Street is going to be closed quite soon for the big new development that's happening down the other end, so there'll be very limited access. But these are going to be closer to uh, Building 1. They're going to be positioned just outside the School of Art, and they're part of a program of public works that the university has been organising, a public sculpture um, things that uh, people are able to identify easily, interact with, um, but which, as again, talk about our history. Uh, Lisa is, uh, or was, uh, no, still is, an alumnus of RMIT, was a student here. Um, she was actually a painting student, never trained as a sculptor. Um, some of you might have been here a couple of weeks ago, she's actually talking about her work, but uh, she took it upon herself. Uh, one day, many decades ago now, just to enter a sculpture competition to see how she would do. And much to the chagrin of the uh, sculptors there, she actually won. And that started her, what she now considers to be her real career, uh, as a a sculptor of uh, public works. So these are both chimpanzee hands. um, Modelled on life, she took casts from a chimpanzee, um, but uh, she does regard her practice as being uh, an organic one. So they're not just facsimiles. She, While she got the general shape with the cast, she actually then erased all the um, the details of the skin and the the palm and the folding the lines and whatnot and actually redid them herself to actually uh, make sure there was still artistic input and they're not just, you know, Jeff Kuhn-style blowed-up, you know, facsimiles of the real thing. So there is an artistic interpretation there. Um, but these pieces are very much about uh, the way we communicate between species, non-verbally. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm losing my voice a little. Uh, talking about the way we understand the world and we understand each other. Uh, so they're very much about non-verbal communication. Uh, now be, it's interesting with the reaction we've had from these actually. Lisa herself regards them as very warm and opening and um a very friendly gesture but we've had some um some comments people are saying you know i love them but they're very sinister um so i don't know personally i don't see that myself but i like the fact that these things are open to interpretation hopefully when we put them on public display they don't seem sinister Uh, they are going to be welcoming people into the school of art um, into the um, painting drawing building building six which is basically just behind us actually Uh, They'll be mounted on bluestone there, and we hope they'll look fantastic. So we were really pleased to be able to bring them in before they actually went on public display. Now, if you've been around the exhibition before, you'll actually see photos all around the walls. And these are works that are currently situated in public places across RMIT's uh, three Melbourne campuses. Um, So Brunswick and Bandura being the other two. Uh, these are works that we tried as we might. There was no way we could get them in. Um, and we really did try. The work behind you, uh, which is by Victor Greenhalgh, and Victor Greenhalgh was one of the first uh, heads of the School of Art, we wanted to be able to bring that in because it's a really fantastic example of um, that same plasticising impulse that was very um, uh, much apparent in Australian art uh, through, mm, through from the you know, early 1900s right through to the 1950s probably beyond as well. You might think of Bertram McKennell, uh, who's a very famous Australian sculptor. Um, But that would have paired very nicely, of course, with the two freezers. Sadly, it's not only attached to a block of granite, which is about as big as that, um, it's also very, very fragile. It's made of sandstone, so we could have detached it from the granite, chipped away the mortar, lifted it up and brought it in. That would have required it being tipped sideways and uh, our conservators thought that would actually crack it in half. Uh, We didn't want to take that risk. So sadly, this along with multiple other pieces just proved too difficult, but we wanted to represent them. Public work is very important to the Vice-Chancellor and to the Art Committee, and um, we wanted to make sure it was represented somehow within this exhibition. A part of my job as collection coordinator is actually uh, project managing the new pieces of of public artwork. And two of the newer pieces you can see at um, RMIT's building 13, which is the Emily McPherson Building, Uh, formerly the Women's Teaching Academy, um, currently the head uh, where the uh, Graduate School of Business and Economics currently resides. Um, And the two works there were very much um, site-specific works. One is by Simon Perry, head of the School of Art, talking about the history of the building as uh, shaping the women's domestic economy within Melbourne. Very interesting piece that talks about the relationship of sculpture to the city beyond it, or public sculpture, I should say, to the city beyond it. The other work, um, which is represented in a photo in Gallery 4, um, is uh, by Alexander Knox, which talks about the greater history of the site, not just as a place um, where the women's domestic economy was really situated, but as um, the site originally, a part of the Melbourne Jail, um, a site where people were actually regarded as part of the economy. Slave labour, essentially, uh, drove much of Victoria at the time. The prisoners were actually forced to contribute to the economy. Um, and it's a very interesting piece, uh, talking about the current history of the building as a place of economics and the past, rather darker history of the building, uh, asking the people who are currently there to reflect on its um, history and... Think about their place in it. Um, So these very site-specific works are very much what we're concentrating on now. We're trying to avoid the idea of works that are, uh, to use the term that Anish Kapoor uh, recently talked about, broaches essentially tacked onto buildings. Um, We really want to uh, think of the art that grows up on campus as being an organic premise. something that is you know, part and parcel of the university, of the experience of being at RMIT. Um, again, other people are going to judge the success of that, but that's what we're aiming to achieve. Now, let's move up into this corner a little bit. Here we have some of the great success stories of RMIT. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and that is the Centre Five Group. Now, this is basically the core of what this exhibition grew around. I don't know if any of you are familiar, but the Centre Five Group consisted of, confusingly, seven people. The five actually refers to their, um, their five-point program of integrating sculpture and architecture. But um, they were Inge King, Vincus Germantus, Julius Kane, Joe Zakaris, uh, Clifford Last, Norma Redpath and Lenton Parr. Now, Five of them actually taught at the university. Uh, We only own three of their works, or three of the artist's works in the collection. Uh, Very fortunately, we own two works by Inga King. Inga's a household name in Melbourne, really. I'm sure you're familiar with her big work, uh, Forward Surge, which is just outside the NGV, or between the NGV and the Arts Centre, which is the big black curving waves. Fantastic piece, as many of her pieces are. Really interesting career. Uh, You can actually see a retrospective of her work down at the NGV at the moment. Um, which is across, at the NGVA campus across three levels. Awkward way of displaying it, but fantastic work, so worth seeing. So we have two of her works. Um, a mid-career work, just behind you there, which is when she was really playing with uh, ellipses as in form, and she was also um, dallying with semi-representational artworks, uh, works that reflected things in nature, in this case, seed pods, um, but were not uh, really one-to-one representations. They were abstractions still, and she's always within her career had this sort of teetering balance between representation and abstraction. One of her later works over here uh, from 2004 when she's just beginning to move into her current phase, and she is still practicing at the age of 98. Um, She still makes sculpture. She's very much interested at the moment in uh, these circular forms. this is not one of her Constellation series, which is what she's really working on at the moment, which reflect uh, the uh, rings of planets and the movements of the stars and star systems and things like that, but she's in- interested in the circular form, and this is one of her early experimentations with that series. Um, uh, as I was saying, the Centre 5 group, immensely important. They were very much interested in um, the ways that architecture could be popularised and driven uh, during a period of extreme conservatism in the 50s, 60s and 70s in Australia, um, people did not want to know about abstract art, not even other artists. Uh, you might be familiar with the, the Angry Penguins and the Antipodean Manifesto, very much concerned with um, this, the threat of abstract art, but it was actually dumbing down art. Um, and it was going to be a danger to the art, art movements of the future. So the Five Group really wanted to educate people about the possibilities of abstraction. They thought it was really the way forward. It was um, going to uh, open people's minds to new ideas, especially ideas coming out of Europe, as um, the American schools of abstraction and minimalism were only just really getting off the, uh, off the ground at the time. Um, and they wanted to really work with architects a lot. They thought working with architecture would be the way to integrate sculpture back into buildings as... Uh, Sculpture used to be very much uh, talking about uh, statuary, um, decoration, things like that. They didn't want to revert back to decoration, but during the modernist period, buildings had become very stark, severe, um, brutalist, moving away from this decorative idea where form followed function. There was no room for anything, you know, artsy-fartsy or anything like that. Um, They wanted to move back to an integration of the two and they saw that as the way forward for sculpture. Sculpture was, again, also struggling a bit in Australia at the time. Sculpture's been really moving forward in fits and starts until recent periods, um, largely due to uh, a dearth of materials, a dearth of um, technological innovation, uh, in many ways a dearth of talent as well. Only up until about the 1950s, or before the 1950s, there was no real sculptors of note working in Australia. Uh, Only until people like uh, Victor Greenhalgh, Bertram McKennell, uh, Percival Ball began really working. Um, Actually, Percival Ball was much earlier. I don't know if you regard his sculpture as good or not, but, you know, that's up to you. Uh, Very conservative, but um, technologically advanced. So that technological advancement was lacking in many ways. Um, And again, the Centre Five saw this as a driving point. Now, they weren't particularly successful. I did have some great commissions working with architects but nothing entirely memorable. Um, on the other hand, their influence was really felt, most of all, through their teaching. Mostly here at RMIT, a little bit at Melbourne as well, holding free lectures for students and architects. Um, but those who worked at RMIT were immensely, uh, immensely successful at shaping the course of architecture for coming generations, um, really popularizing sculpture as a medium. Um, and showing the way forward for abstraction as well. And the works we have here, uh, as I said, were really the kernel of this exhibition. Um, We wanted to show what the RMIT Sculpture Department had been capable of over the years, and its influence, and again, its history within the collection. Um, However, whilst we had this fantastic history of sculpture, we didn't have many of the pieces. The two by, um, obviously, by Ian McCain we had. And at the time, we only had the one piece by Lenton Parr, this wall piece here, which should actually come from the Philip Institute. Um, so we'd sort about uh, collecting other pieces. Now, we were lucky enough to get this piece uh, here, which is one of uh, Parr's more recent pieces. This was a fairly early piece, but this was... Uh, more within the character of his career uh, as it developed into its later years, uh, working with these very ribbon-like movements of steel, um, completely non-representational. He did name them all after constellations. This one's called Cetus, for instance, you know, Sagittarius and Orion and things like that. But he never regarded the titles as being anything other than a way of tracking the work. Um, He wasn't particularly interested in, um, you know, signs and signifiers of what they meant. He just wanted to allow the material to talk for itself. Um, a truth to material, he called it after uh, a term used in an essay by Herbert Reed, who was one of the great British commentators on sculptor, sculpture. Um, and these very organic flowing forms, he uh, were, uh, I think, a direct influence of Henry Moore, who he actually studied under uh, for many years, although he more often went into a more representational or figurative form of sculpture, uh, completely eschewed that he was very much interested in abstraction. Um, but that was it for The Centre Five, which was a real pity until late last year we were contacted by uh, Ken Scarlett, who's very interested in the development of sculpture in Australia. He's one of you know, the great doyens of Australian sculpture. Um, he literally, quite literally, wrote the book on it. Um, and he said, I've got an old cast by Vincus Germantus, uh, who was head of the School of Art, one of The Centre Five. Um, would you like to cast a new edition of the work from it? There's only one ever being cast. It was intended to be a larger edition, but he died before it could be done. Uh, The one that does exist is currently in the Parliament House collection. Um, He said, I'm on very good terms with the artist's widow. Um, She'd be happy for for you to do it. And we said, oh, my God, yes. So this is the result over here. It's uh, first and only posthumous casting uh, of a work. Um, But uh, this is a piece that has essentially... Um, been forgotten. I don't know how large the original edition was intended to be. Um, I would suspect no more than three or four at the very most. Gimantus never did large editions of his work, Um, but we're very pleased to be able to gain this. Um, The man had huge, huge influence, particularly on the three artists across this wall here, um, which was uh, Geoffrey Bartlett, Gus DeLava and Anthony Pryor. Uh, who during the eighties and nineties were seen as you know the th- the big three? Um, their work is obviously very different, very um, concerned with uh, airy playfulness, whereas Vinkus is all about gravitas and um, really you know monumental pieces. But um, while this piece actually doesn't show it, he was very interested in organic forms. And he worked with wood a lot as well, uh, which I think. His three students um, took a lot from, and they often work with natural materials, uh, or worked, in the case of Pryor, obviously, who's no longer with us. Um, But this is a very interesting piece, beautifully engineered, I'm told. I don't know enough about the engineering of sculpture, I'm afraid, but apparently um, the person we commissioned to actually cast it was blown away by the way that balance is achieved by the way that um, each piece is cast. For instance, this block here in the centre is apparently four separate pieces that have actually been welded together uh, perfectly and seamlessly. Um, And each piece cast in such a way that it's integral to the whole, but with, you know, seamless, essentially. Um, So we're very pleased to have that. Uh, While we're here, we might as well have a look at... This work here with its companion piece at the other side of the room. This piece uh, pieces by Lu Shen and the piece over there is by his brother Shen. And these reflect, um, as I was talking about earlier, the university's interest in Southeast Asia, uh, or Asia in general, really. We are, of course, moving into the Asian century, and again, I'm not an economist, so I won't talk to that. But RMIT is interested in Asia. We're opening up multiple campuses across Asia. We already have them in Vietnam. We're moving into India. Uh, there are smaller campuses throughout Southeast Asia. Um, so the Vice-Chancellor was very interested in looking at ways we could engage with um, Asian art. We have a really interesting collection. but These are the two pieces of sculpture that we've acquired recently. Um, now both uh, Lu Xiaoshan and Arshan, um were part of the diaspora from China just after the Tiananmen Square Massacre in the 90s. Uh, they were both there at the time, both felt immensely betrayed by the government um, and essentially fled over here. They both became taxi drivers. They're both highly trained artists as well, um, but um, they worked in menial jobs for a long time until they finally were able to get enough money together to begin practicing again. And of course they began on these fantastic sculptures Liu Xiaoxian, not quite as famous at the moment, but you might recognize Ahxian's work. It's everywhere. He won the Clemenger Award in 2004. Um, immensely, immensely successful. His work is now in all the major collections in Australia. Um, Liu Xiaoxian is beginning to gain the same notoriety as well. So this work here um, was cast in uh, Jingzhen Province in China. Just going to move around here. It's actually part of the work that's uh, cast in Jingzhen. Uh, they don't create, just create some of the best uh, porcelain in the world. It's actually the home, the historical home of porcelain production in China. Um, and both of the brothers' art is very much concerned with the history of uh, Eastern art, but talked about through the mode of Western art. They see um, Western art as really being a way forward um, with modernism and postmodernism and. Contemporaneity and all these sorts of terms and things like that, but um, they're very much interested in not losing sense of who they are, where they come from, and um, what their culture means to them. So um, this piece actually gave us fits and connections because it has to be cast overseas and brought back from China. Um, pieces like this one, for instance, are so fine, so fragile, and the stress on that curve there We had to actually have, uh, for all of these curved ones, five or six different pieces cast, uh, because the artist insists on bringing the work back in his suitcase every time. Um, Now, he insists that it's part of the work. I think it's, you know, to dodge various freighting fees and things like that. Doesn't matter, practicality and and aesthetic ideas can both meld quite happily. But um, two of the pieces did break um, in transit, as expected. So fortunately, we did have some spares. Um, but it would have... Sorry, yes, go ahead. Glazed? You no, glazed them? there as well. So completely finished um, in Jingchen. Um And, yes, brought back here at considerable risk. And it, we would have been devastated had all of the pieces broken. Fortunately, enough survived um, if they had been broken. He was quite happy to go over there and do it all again, but that would have been another... You know, 12 to 18 months before we'd actually see the finished piece back here, with the same risks again. Um, so this is currently on display in RMIT's main boardroom. Uh, obviously, the piece is about um, Eastern and Western differences. Um, Lu Shashun is very interested in these differences, uh, obvious cultural differences, but also, I think, not just talking about how East is good and simple, West is silly and complex. Also, I think it's not just a, you know, it's a celebration of the Zen like simplicity of Eastern culture and practice, but also I think a celebration of Western decoration, um, which has its own history and can, we can take our own pride in that. As I said, he's very much interested in the modes of Western art, but not just um, talking about post colonial discourse, but about the way that um, art can develop when it takes a holistic view of cultural practices very similar to his yes, Brother ah, Harjian. Harjian, at the end, is very interested in um, these two different ways of looking at things, both the Western and East, and how they can be combined, um, and the new ideas that can be brought out of that. Now, those of you who are familiar with his work, uh, particularly the China China series, which is, this is part of, and which he gained um, considerable uh, acclaim for. Uh, each of them is uh, a body cast uh, taken from um, a live person, um, always uh, a volunteer, never a professional model, just a regular person. So you'll always see um, these slightly de idealised figures, slumped shoulders in this the instances. Uh, this uh, this is a young uh, girl, I think she's twelve or thirteen here. Um, but you'll see people with, you know, jowls, big ears, um, slightly, you know odd cast to their head. Always shaved heads, always um, nude, always slightly obscured by something. In this case obviously lotus leaves uh, and flowers, but whether it's calligraphy or willow pattern decoration uh, or uh, in some instances he has rocks and things like that, there's always something just slightly covering them, making make them just slightly mysterious, slightly alien, slightly odd and off kilter. Um, always very beautiful, though. He was very much concerned with the aesthetic possibilities that um, one is capable of uh, in reference to ordi- ordinary people, in inverted commas. Um, and these uh, works look towards the Western tradition, obviously, of the bust, um, and it's uh, very, you know very important Western uh, mode of sculptural expression, where sculpture actually became portable, as opposed to giant statues and things like that. Um, but it harkens also back to the Eastern traditions of death masks, uh, also popular in the West, I must say, but also to the terracotta warriors and things like that. Um, so he really is looking at um, ideas of engaging with death in many ways. Um, And I think this is also brought out by the Lotus Leaf and ideas of nirvana and things like that. Others of his work are sort of less concerned with that, but they all keep the same model of working. Now, as I was saying, RMIT is very interested in new technologies. Um, So if we move over to the middle here, we're interested in innovation, not just in in formal terms like the Centre Five were great great innovators in the, the 60s and 70s, but um, looking at the way technology can actually drive the practice of art. So here we have this piece by Sam Jenks. And this utilizes technology that wouldn't have been available for more than five, maybe 10 years at the very outer. Um, these pieces have been cast by hand um, and then painted, covered in a layer of translucent latex to give that slightly, again, translucent s- skin quality um, and then each and every hair, both on the heads and the bodies, individually sewn in by hand. Um, It's a really obsessive piece um, done by, I think, a man who is himself very obsessive. He's um, very much interested in obtaining perfection in detail. Um, He's not interested in idealisation or perfection of form very much. I mean, these are non-idealised forms. As you can see, it's all about fleshy folds and um, sagging and curled in bodies and things like that, Um, but he's very interested in how he can obtain the perfect representation of that form. So it's painstaking work um, and he actually came in to check that you know it hadn't gotten dusty and there was no hair out of place before we put it on display. Uh, He'll be actually doing a talk I think in a couple of weeks time so please if you're interested come along and see that. But as I said, the technology wasn't, didn't exist before, um, you know, the late 1990s. Uh, Sam Jinks has no uh, formal training whatsoever. He worked for a time in film and television doing makeup and uh, modelling and things like that. But um, he received a lot of work under Patricia Piccinini, who I'm sure his work you're familiar with. Um, he actually, she would design the work, he would make it for her. He really got to grips with um, the media in that way and then, more recently, went out on his own. Um, he gets a lot of comparison to Ron Muick, whose work you might also be familiar with, but where Ron Muick is very much interested in expanding and blowing up the body and showing it in ginormous proportions, uh, Sam is very much interested in uh, taking it down, making it smaller, um, showing you know, the, the care and detail that he can achieve using these media. Another piece, very similar to the... Well, not entirely similar, but um, again, using this very new technology, this here. So this piece is by uh, Maria Fernanda Cardoso. Uh, Maria is uh, not an alumnus of RMIT, but um, we have had a bit, an interest in her work for some time. We have a couple of other pieces of hers in the collection, photographic works. But um, this series is actually just so fascinating. We had to have a, a piece by her from this uh, series of nine works. Um, this is her uh, intermittent organ series. And this is actually the penis of a Tasmanian harvestman, which is a bit like a daddy longlegs, except it's not a spider. It is actually an insect. And she's very, very interested um, in um, the mating behaviour of insects um, and uh, microscopic species, essentially. Uh, and she uses the very latest in electro, uh, electron mycography, I'm probably mispronouncing that, um, and uh, using you know, high, high-quality telephoto lenses. she's. Um, just received a new grant to work on um, uh, a, type, a new type of spider and their mating behaviour. And for that, she's had to commission the very latest lenses from the BBC um, to, uh, to actually photograph these things, which the BBC hasn't actually used yet for nature documentaries. But um, she'll be the first to actually really get her hands on them and get to grips with them. Um, but she's very interested in showing the, um, the difference of um, the animal world we're very used to seeing you know the phallus as a given shape um but she just wanted to show the possibility the difference the complexity um the outrageousness um of various in- intact genitalia um and to actually achieve this she's used rapid prototyping or 3d printing as it's more commonly used actually getting a 3d image on a computer and then building it up in resin through a 3d printer um, which is the only way she was able to, at this scale, get such complexity of detail. Um, you might, a master craftsman might be able to achieve it with glass, but it would be a very near thing. Um, you couldn't even do it with porcelain. So um, it's really, for the first time I think, bringing this sort of complexity to scale and allowing it to be seen in a three-dimensional form. Um, so that. That blend of science and art is really something we couldn't go past and had to be part of the collection for us. So we're really pl- proud to have that on display here. Now, I realise I've been nattering on for a little while. Uh, what, how are we going for time? Um, we're coming up to the end of Coming that, up to the yes. end. Well, does anyone have any questions they'd like to ask? I was just thinking, John, would you like to actually end um, in the sound room? Oh, okay, because yes, I think that's... that's a really important part, John curated the uh, sound exhibition Soundbite City last year and um, he's, um, he's made a fabulous room, uh, how do you display sound, and his sound sculpture, and so I think if you end it in there and talk a bit about um, no, Bill well, Fontanis. Let's, let's go room. back out there. The no, that's fine. And it's to do with the uh, colour of the mm-hmm. think, Was that a choice mm-hmm. and why? Uh, yes, it was a, um, a definite choice. Uh, we're just talking about the colour of the plinths, which is a much more complex question than um, you know, the sound I first. Asked, the last time I was in a couple the name of the colour, because it is was afraid of life. Ah, there we so, go. Well, this one's tuxedo grey, <laughs> if tuxedo anyone's interested. Tuxedo grey, okay. Yes. Um, no, very conscious. Um, white is overused. Um, it's become a cliché now. Um, it is a very clinical uh, way of displaying things, very ultra-modern, and while we do have a lot of modernist works, we also have a lot of very organic pieces as well, works um, that are older and very much newer as well. We didn't want to talk about them in terms that have become stereotypically modernist um, and very cold, very clinical, so we made a conscious decision to go with something that was still very, very, very simple, very clean, but at the same time just A little bit warmer, a little bit different. We knew it was going to be offset by the walls, um, so it would still allow the pieces to really talk, really spring out, but wouldn't be in that very ultra-clinical white. Sorry, is Dan Jinx on white? is is the exception because he likes his work to be displayed on white. It's a deliberate choice by him, and we didn't want to... There's a lot of walls in it, and the grey would probably... Yeah, exactly. It would would have killed it anyway, so... Yeah, but he insists on white, and we're happy to, you know, if any of the artists have said no, or well, the living artists, obviously. Yeah, and it's called Tuscadero. Tuxedo, right. tuxedo great. Is that uh, closely linked with what I heard some time ago at the NGB when the, um, uh, was it the no, no, what was it called, the Neo Expressionist show was on? I remember attending, and um, one of the speakers, his name, I've forgotten. Um, spoke about how the artists then chose particular uh, colours for the frames and the wall colour when they exhibited in salons at that time. Is it? No, is some, no? <laughs> I wish I could say that, yes, that was absolutely that, was a historical precedent, but no, we just chose a colour we liked. <laughs> stop out here simply because there's a lot of sound actually in there um, this uh, a big concern of the exhibition is about innovation not just within art in general but in sculpture um, and um, how the the actual medium has changed over the course of well, the last you know 50 60 70 years and um, now, to that end, we wanted to look at both light sculpture, and you might have seen in the Long Gallery back there, we did have a light sculpture by Recco Rennie, but also sound sculpture. Now, in the 1950s, Barnett Newman was asked to define sculpture, and he said, oh, it's what you bump into when you back up to see a painting. Um, now, obviously, he was being very facetious and probably a bit too witty for his own good, because within about five years, he'd actually been proved wrong. Sculpture had... Ex- entered what was, you know, in academic terms, known as the expanded field where uh, artists had, because of the technological uh, processes that were becoming available, but also because they wanted to reject the very traditional forms of sculpture, bronze and steel and wood and things like that they moved out into completely new ways of exploring sculptural space. Now sculpture is about the examination of form and space. Now, sculptors will argue about this ad nauseum you know, if you ever want to really get into a good debate with sculptors, they'll go on with you about this at length. But uh, at base, they all agree that sculpture is about exploring three-dimensionality. Um, and there's multiple ways you can do that. You don't actually have to do that by creating a form. Many sculptors insist that you can do that just by exploring the concept of space. And so we have this work here by Bill Fontana. Well, the university has been interested in sound for some years, and two years ago we embarked on a sound collection, which is the first of its kind in Australia. I think the mic has ceased working in here oh, sorry. Uh, yes. that's all right so i 'll just speak up a little bit. Um, the sound collection um, entirely new for Australia um, both bec- because it has been technologically impossible to um, really deliver an exhibit up until recently with you know technology with speakers and things like that and computerization has become much more available. Um, but it's also hard to deliver in a public place and there's been all sorts of, you know, grand heroic failures like Acme um, and their outdoor sound display or the display down on South Bank, which I think no one's ever heard of, um, simply because it just couldn't be brought into being. So we're working on doing that at RMIT. We've actually got an outdoor um Uh, sound sculpture display at the Bandura campus which is due to open in June Um, and so far that's looking really good so that's going to be our first platform for displaying the sound art collection Um, but we have also been doing these uh, smaller uh, exhibitions of of the sound art collection within the gallery space so we had the exhibition Soundbite City last year but given that we were doing an exhibition on sculpture we really wanted to um, include a sound piece in that the most sculptural of the sound pieces is this work by Bill Fontana. Uh, Bill is an American artist um, working out of San Francisco. He is regarded as one of the fathers of the sound art movement, uh, or the modern sound art movement. Um, And this piece was recorded during his time in Australia at Kirribilli Wharf in Sydney. Uh, It was made using what was at the time cutting edge technology. Only the ABC had recording equipment sufficient to do what he wanted, so he was working with them. Um, at dawn every day before the recording equipment went off to the studios to be used. Um, And he essentially set up uh, an eight channel map of the wharf. Now the wharf, I don't know what it's like now, but at the time it was just concrete with these holes drilled up through the bottom. Uh, And as the tide came in, the water would lap up and create this resonant, well you can hear it, this sort of sloshing bonk of a sound. So he thought that not only could he create a sonic map, as it were, of that, um, of that time and that place, but also that it had an uh, inherently aesthetic and musical quality, and he wanted to bring that out to it. So actually, when you go into the room, it's actually an eight stereo array that's been set up, um, and you can, when you sit in the middle, it actually creates that map of space and that point in time. This was a really interesting purchase for us because very serendipitous. It turns out this piece was first exhibited here at RMIT Gallery in 1977 um, when Bill was doing a residency. Uh, We didn't know that at the time. We just thought it was a really interesting piece of work. But these are the things you discover. Um, And he said, oh, you know, goodbye because of this. And we thought, well, there you go, instant history. So I really recommend going in there, having a listen. It's a 27-minute piece. That can be a little bit long for some people but it's worth even just going in for a few minutes. Now, the blue light, again, this is going back to your question about exhibition design. The blue light is not part of the work, but uh, we wanted again to de-emphasize that very clinical gallery space. Um, Without the light there, it's basically just a row of eight speakers, or not a row, sorry, a circle of eight speakers. looks a bit monolithic and a bit imposing. With the light there, it becomes a very different experience. Um, Blue, obviously, resonating with water and things like that there's actually a pattern display of lighting in there so again very much to de-emphasize that white cube effect of the gallery make it all a bit warmer a bit more human a bit more interesting so are there any more questions please thank john thank you very much for coming in